to information. And um, I'm excited to see so many people in the room to hear about data collection. <laughs> We're all museum people and library people, and numbers are not necessarily you know, what we went into this field for, but it's a necessary evil. Um, I'm Ingrid Bogel, and I'm the executive director of the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And um, the Conservation Center was lucky enough to receive a planning grant on behalf of Pennsylvania. And this year, we um, also received an implementation grant. So we're really thrilled and excited and are just getting started in, um, on that particular project and having a great time. So, um, and one other just sort of anecdotal thing. I think we're all sort of freaked out about this. <laughs> about this little mini stage. Last night we were talking about phobias at dinner, and I think my phobia is heights. So um, everyone keep an eye on me so I don't go toppling off of here. Um, so today we're going to discuss data collection and um, the results of the statewide preservation planning surveys in a number of states. And um, we're going to sort of whip through um, a lot of the country, I think. Um, New Jersey, Delaware, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Minnesota, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, and before we begin, I was just curious um, if there are people in the audience who were not part of the Connecting to Collections initiative. Do we have some other folks who've joined us from AASLH? Just a couple. Okay, um, well, our plan for this session is to share some of the processes that were um, involved in our statewide surveys and then to talk a little bit about the issues that unfolded as we managed our data. And, and then finally, what we think our data showed. So I'm going to start by giving some brief background information and context regarding the development of the IMLS C2C initiative. And then we're going to hear from Bob Horton, representing Minnesota, Lee Price, um, who's going to talk about Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and West Virginia and Tom Clarison representing Delaware, Ohio, and the U.S. Virgin Islands regarding their findings relative to the statewide planning efforts. And they're each going to talk briefly about their partners their, and their, um, the process, the issues that they um, uncovered when they were um, collecting data, and some of the results. And in the case of Delaware, some current implementation strategies. And we're also very lucky today to have Kristen Lays with us because she oversaw the National Heritage Health Index project, which really initiated this entire program. She's going to wrap up today's session um, by talking about the broad implications of the data. And I'd like to note that we do have handouts over on the table that provide the URLs and the contacts for the completed C2C projects. So please take one um, at the end of the session if you want more information. So um, I know because all of you have, or most of you have participated in a C2C initiative, that you know a lot about this project. But I thought it would be good to get a little bit of a historical review. Um, how do these statewide planning grants come to be? Um, as we do know, in 2005, Heritage Preservation released the Heritage Health Index Report, which was based on an ambitious survey of collecting institutions around the country to determine the state of collections nationally. And this was really um, an unprecedented um, project and really set the stage for all of the incredible work that was to follow. 
and, um, and that incredible work was funded through IMLS funding support. And we really owe this support, as um, Nancy Rogers alluded to on Wednesday, to Dr. Anna Melda Radice, who in 2007, as she was interviewing to become the head of IMLS, took the Heritage Health Index with her to her interview and said, this is what I want to build my, my, my four-year tenure on. And um, so the Connecting to Collections initiative was born. So here are the components of, of the initiative. Um, the five forums throughout the country, um, the 23 text set of conservation must-reads, the, the bookshelf, which was distributed free to almost 3,000 museums and libraries across the country, the competitive $40,000 planning grants awarded to nearly every state in the United States, plus several territories over a three-year period. And I'm, I'm sure that those planning grants also leverage additional money, because I know in Pennsylvania we matched that um, 40,000 grant almost um, over one-to-one. Um, -one. That wasn't required, but that was, um, it was an impetus to raise additional funds. And an international meeting, and I'm not sure that you know, everyone knew about that international meeting, bringing together preservation professionals from around the world. And then, of course, the um, implementation funding to assist in addressing the findings from the state planning grants. And I believe that there have been 12 planning grants awarded thus far. And there is going to be another round of implementation grants which will be due sometime in February of 2012. Um, guidelines, I don't think, are um, available yet, but will be forthcoming. And you should come to the 4 o'clock session if you want to know more about that. So here is a listing of the five two-day forums with the topic cities and dates. And these were primarily intended, attended by invited participants. And IMLS provided funding support for people's attendance at this meeting. And I think um, they were very well attended. And I think there were approximately 200 to 250 people at each venue. And I'm sure many of you attended at least one of these sessions. So back to the Heritage Health Index results. HHI identified four overarching issues for areas of future focus as part of its study, and these four findings became the basis for the planning grants. So the first area of focus was providing safe conditions for collections. And the second area of focus was making certain that stewardship of collections was a priority and that it was a part of the job description for at least one staff member or volunteer at collecting institutions. Number three highlighted the need for advocacy at all levels, institutionally. So within our institutions, talking to the executive directors, trying to get leverage additional funding for conservation and preservation issues in our operating budgets, talking to the boards of our institutions, um, leveraging foundation support, government support, and of course involving the private sector as well. And finally, the HHI discovered that an extremely high percentage of institutions did not have an emergency plan that addressed the needs of their collections in the event of a natural or a man-made disaster. And listening to our discussions over the past couple of days, um, it's really clear that disaster preparedness has really taken a front role in many of our planning grants, um, also our implementation grants, and it continues to be um, a real focus of our mutual efforts. 
As I mentioned, another component of the IMLS Connecting to Collections project was taking the initiative global. So IMLS embarked on hosting a three-day conference in Salzburg, Austria, which was called Connecting to the World's Collections, Making the Case for the Conservation and Preservation of Our Cultural Heritage. And this event was by invitation only. It was fully funded by IMLS and brought together over 60 cultural heritage leaders from 32 countries located in um, Africa, Asia, Middle East, South America, Australia, Europe, and North America. And the culmination of those three days was the drafting and acceptance of the Salzburg Declaration. And some of that text is illuminated here. And um, I should just mention that Tom Claris and I were really very lucky to be invited to participate in this really special <coughs> excuse me, meeting. It was an incredibly diverse group of people and really um, an inspiring and life-altering event. And the group discussed day and night um, collection stewardship, practical recommendations to ensure collections preservation, advances in conservation research, advocacy measures, and the potential for future global collaborations. And on the left is um, Schloss Leopoldskron, which was the conference setting. So you can't feel badly for us. We were very well taken care of. And this, um, in coincidentally, is also where The Sound of Music was filmed. So it was a really great place, beautiful lake right in front of this, um, this building. And on the right is um, Lonnie Bunch, who delivered the keynote address. He's a very inspiring um, speaker. And Lonnie is the first director of the new National Museum of African American History and Culture that's being constructed in Washington, D.C., so now I'm going to turn the program over to our panelists, Bob, Lee, Tom, and Kristen. Um, and as we hear them talk about their experiences, it would be good, I think, to focus on the similarities and differences from state to state. And I think what I've been um, realizing is that there's just a lot more similarities, regardless of size, regardless of um, remoteness of um, to, um, to good information. I think... Um, the needs are, are really deep and, and are really cross um, state borders and um, territory borders. I think we all um, share the same concerns and some of the same issues. So um, I think it's good to think about how these findings um, compare to the statistics and what you've learned in, in your um, part of the country and uh, would make for some um, good discussion at the end of this session. So now it's my pleasure to turn the podium over to Bob Horton to speak about Minnesota. You may be better at this than I. Let's see. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ingrid. You just did the hard part, and uh, I'll try to follow up on that. Thank you all for coming, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of the panel. Um, thanks to the IMLS for funding us all. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, the, uh, the grant, uh, planning grant that, that we 
developed in Minnesota was, was uh, a joint effort from my own institution, the Historical Society and the Midwest Art Conservation Center. Probably you're, many of you are familiar with it. Um, we applied for the uh, planning grant, which I will talk about, how that went and what we learned. And then I'll talk also about uh, a, 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 a program that we were lucky enough to have uh, in place just as the planning process ended, a legacy fund and some legacy grants uh, that we were able to start um, using to evaluate, test, implement some of what we had learned uh, in the planning process. And that will give us a little bit of feedback about the uh, value of the information gathering process, how it could be refined and how it could be used. So the planning process was fairly intricate. We started off with an online survey. Um, with the, with the design closely model and what uh, the Heritage Health Index had used. Um, we then followed up uh, with focus groups, stakeholder meetings, and conference, basically with the idea of getting uh, a balance to the quantitative information with qualitative information, to use face-to-face -face meetings to tease out meaning, uh, to help us set some priorities and work towards a final report, with the idea that we would learn something with the online survey that the conversations later would allow us to enrich and enhance our understanding of what we had learned. And uh, frankly, um, this uh, survey was not meant to be a comprehensive exploration of the state of conservation in the state of Minnesota. And there's a little bit of contention about that. I, I appreciate certainly the fact that a survey, uh, a comprehensive survey, has a tremendous value in developing a community of understanding about needs and, and resources it also can engage a lot of people who probably aren't even aware of some of the issues. Um, but we were very, I think, perhaps concerned with moving forward to making decisions and doing something rather than um, spending a lot of time reaching out to organizations and, and gathering information um, in, a, in, a, in a difficult process. Part of the inspiration that, frankly, for that, frankly, came from a conversation uh, some of us at the Historical Society had with the state's legislative auditor a few years ago about the process they use for audits. And the staff there said that they no longer, you know, took their eye shades and their adding machines and went into an office and, and looked at every piece of paper, all the receipts and invoices and canceled checks. They said what they did was they, they took a dump of information from a, the, a government entity's financial system and then ran it against a program that looked for discrepancies. It compared this year's information against last year's spending and projected budgets. Um, and they called it creative accounting. Um, which I had the same reaction. My, uh, I, was a bit, I was a bit taken aback because to me it, it implied or suge suggested either an oxymoron or a crime. And after a while it grew on me though because it, what it what really sort of uh, the appeal I think and the appeal certainly in this context was we had every reason to suspect that as Ingrid was saying, we're not different from anybody else. That what we would discover would confirm what the Heritage Health Index, what other states had discovered, what we, from a great deal of experience in working with a whole variety of entities in the cultural heritage business across Minnesota, pretty much already expected to know, that there was a huge gap, an enormous discrepancy between needs on the one hand and resources on the other. So we did a, a survey that was really more or less a sampling, um, and which to a certain extent was defined to see if we could identify discrepancies, tease out any things that we would have to explore in further detail in the um, discussions with the focus groups. So I'm just going to flash through these because I don't think there are any real surprises here. Um, 
People had very clear ideas about which collections were most at risk. Um, we could have predicted what sort of activities um, most people undertook. Um, and then uh, we asked, started to get into, how would you say, position ourselves to identify uh, priorities and trying to start um, identifying um, needs. When we got into the uh, process of talking to people through survey or through, uh, I'm sorry, focus groups and other types of meetings, um, we already had an idea, a list of priorities that we just used to uh, refine, elaborate, go over, and I said earlier to tease out the meaning, get people to articulate um, what exactly uh, they meant um, in uh, their responses to the surveys and talk about how to not just identify the problems, but how to address them, how to, how to move forward into an implementation grant. And this is the list of the four priorities that we came from. Um, the value, I think, of the, um, the focus groups um, particularly is because if we look at the second one, which says uh, develop and distribute a range of training and educational products, which I think is an obvious good. I mean, everyone understands that it's extraordinarily useful and valuable to have something like that available in every state. What we heard both formally and informally through a lot of the focus groups, you know, sometimes it was out loud and sometimes it was sort of oche, you know, in the corner over a, over a cookie, was that every, pretty much everybody understood that there was already plenty of educational opportunities in the, Minnesota, in the state of Minnesota from Max workshops, from our workshops, what both of us had online, what a whole variety of groups all over the world in the nation had online, and that people pretty much already knew what they could do, what they should do, what even they were doing wrong, but they didn't really take advantage of it. There was quite often a situation, well, I'd go to a meeting, and then I'd come back, and then something else would come up. You know, so we kind of understood that even though you could readily identify, to a certain extent, the cliches, you know, everybody knows it's a good thing, um, it might necessarily be something that was, in a sense, really actionable. So one response to that was to start for us to define, and again, this kind of borrowed from what Heritage Health Index was to say, that repositories had to do something. That if there is a big gap between needs and resources, you could work on the resource end, but you also had to address the needs end. People had to start doing some investment at the institutional end in order to be able to take advantage of whatever resources we could offer. And so those um, are the uh, 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 responsibilities, I suppose you might call them, that we kind of identified that any repository that was looking to do better work in conservation and care of collections would have to undertake. They'd have to take a few steps on their own, regardless of what, what we would do. Um, legacy grants gave us an opportunity to figure out you know, just exactly what all that meant. How did it play out in the real life. And a little background on the Legacy Fund, the good citizens of Minnesota a few years ago uh, voted to raise their taxes, um, essentially uh, established a constitutional amendment, created a sales surtax with funding um, to go to conservation of the environment, uh, the majority of that fund, but also to arts and cultural heritage. Um, and it generates a considerable amount of money. The Minnesota Historical Society operates a grant program um, with funding from that, which um, has been um, just in the past few years, this was actually, it's our third year, um, averages about five million or so a year. We set that up um, in a couple of different buckets, um, and the small grants fund is for grants under $7,000. Very simple process, awarded monthly, so we expedited the process in order to deliver funds quickly to uh, institutions that could state a need. 
to make that even easier, we set up a couple of structured grants. And this is what the information from our, our planning process helped to, uh, to establish, or at least articulate, was a structured grant essentially basically said, we know this is a need. We know that people have told us they want to do something like this. We more or less wrote the grant identifying processes, in some cases identifying potential vendors, um, more or less um, developing a budget. So virtually anybody could just do nothing more than sign it, submit it, and get a very strong likelihood of, of getting the money. So um, what I have up here is some statistics from uh, the small grants process over the first two years of, of the Legacy Fund grant program. Um, there were 15 applications, uh, 15 awards, sorry, 15 awards for conservation-related work. And most of these 15 were related to you know, taking care of a particular set of objects or a book or something, all under $7,000. We had three conservation-related structure grants, one uh, to develop the DeVast disaster plan, one to improve building storage and HVAC system, and one to uh, do some uh, preliminary conservation assessment and develop a conservation plan. You can see that there were 16 applications. Um, there were about 500 county local historical societies in Minnesota. Um, so um, that's $7,000, um, more or less there for the taking. Um, and that's kind of the response. Um, in contrast, um, there were 44 requests to purchase microfilm. And there were 124 uh, loosely categorized uh, small grant requests, um, and, and many of those were structured grants as well, related to access, um, creating uh, better access to collections. So you can see, even after a certain amount of, of study, even after a certain amount of educational work, um, people had different priorities. Mid to large, I think um, even more, um, and this is anything over 7,000 top, um, as much as you could ask for. Um, and realistically, that got to be around $100,000, $200,000 as a top range. One, about a $40,000 request for extensive work on um, a, 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 a conservation um, need. One, major planning grant. Um, Ten, larger building um, storage, HVAC renovation type uh, grants. So um, one of the things that sort of occurred to me is, you know, given the fact that we had sort of identified and confirmed that there was a huge set of needs, and certainly a, a very large audience, um, as, I, as I noted, um, why wasn't there more action taken? Why didn't, why didn't people take the initiative? Um, especially since we had tried purposefully to make this process as simple as possible. Structured grants, small grants, quick awards, very simple application forms. Um, not much response in the conservation area compared to the very same volume or very uh, large volume of requests for other things coming from the same institutions. Um, what I just glanced at, people had other priorities. That if they would look at their own strategic plans, no matter what I would suggest, um, they would say maybe we're more interested in getting people in the door than we are in taking care of our collections. Um, maybe there was, well you name it, uh, I, and I am puzzled by the fascination with microfilm, but since I'm selling most of it, it's a good thing. So I can't really complain. Um, but it's just a thing. The other, the other thing I think is obviously there's a sequence of tasks. And you can see maybe to a certain extent that you know, the fact that 11 people are interested in the plan is probably a good thing. Because that gives them the opportunity to make a strategic decision about what comes next. 
So maybe there should be some more emphasis on getting that first step underway, getting the plan in place to give people a confidence and the, the uh, blueprint to move forward. Some of it, frankly, is a lack of capacity. 500 local and county historical societies vastly disparate in size and capacity and resources. Some probably will never get it together to, to write a grant for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and then implementation, even at a $7,000 level, um, could be more than a volunteer op op organization can manage. Even an organization with maybe one or two professionals, they have other things to do, may not be uh, capable of doing. It could point to the need for more education and outreach. Maybe we just have to bolster their confidence. Maybe we just have to tell them how easy it is, show them some examples. Um, though I should say in, in that, that, that line, at one point in our focus groups, I was saying, well, maybe we should have success stories. Maybe we should tell people about um, you know, a similar organization that had done better. And somebody said, you know, those just scare us. Why don't you have failure stories? Why don't, you know, we, we, we would be more um, impressed with, you know, finding out that somebody screwed up than they succeeded. Um, maybe that's a Minnesota thing? Uh, I don't know. Um, but I offer that, you know, the education and outreach might not be, you know, everything we need. And I would say, you know, in that context, one thing we've learned, some other projects we've done, particularly in our work with uh, digitization, uh, working with born digital content, that we started in many ways to sort of develop a, a variety of manuals, guidelines, do-it-yourself type things, assuming people would be able to pick them up and do it. And what we've really sort of come to understand in that realm especially is that people, no matter how much education and outreach you do, would really prefer that you do it for them. Um, and that shared services in that area is far more attractive than a do-it-yourself approach. So uh, the Minnesota Digital Library example, is, and I could go into that in detail you know, at some point not now if you want uh, to talk about that. But um, I think there is sort of one uh, conclusion that we might think about is that uh, no amount of education and outreach will help us get to a, a point where people across the board are, are comfortable enough with doing some of these things. And we probably have to look for a shared services program where we come to them uh, to be uh, comprehensively, comprehensively, comprehensively too, I guess, um, universally successful. Um, that's uh, a website with um, uh, a link to our project and project reports. Um, below that is a link to our conservation programs, uh, resources, all the education stuff. Um, that's uh, a link to the uh, legacy grants. And um, my colleague, Sherilyn Ogden, who really, who really did most of the work and should be here, but unfortunately had a different commitment, um, and uh, I are both available by email if there are any questions we can answer. Thank you. First, I, 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 this is very off topic, but I'd just like to um, mention that yesterday I was looking at my schedule and realized I had a few hours free, so I scheduled a private tour at Monumental Church at 1 o'clock today. And then later on I decided that that was a little selfish um, to, to 
to have this private tour to myself and how much they'd appreciate if 100 of my closest friends tagged along. <laughs> so if anybody is interested in seeing Monumental Church, just meet me up afterwards, and if we have a, you know, a reasonable-sized group, I'll just give them a call and let them know that um, uh, it, it, may be more than, it may be more than one. I'm bringing, I'm <laughs> bringing some buddies along. <laughs> So if you are interested, please do. It's, it's a seven-block walk down, down this way. Early 19th century structure looks absolutely fascinating. Historic Richmond Foundation. I'm sure it'll be a lovely tour. So if you're looking for something this afternoon, I, it is a serious invitation. Um, good morning. I was very privileged to serve as the data analyst and the lead writer on three preservation plans through the Connecting Collections um, grants. I worked on Pennsylvania first. And for that, Danielle, could I have... Can I pass this around? Um, this is just make sure nobody walk out with this at the end. I do want this back. Um, we only have a few copies left, I think. Um, but that, that, is our, that is our preservation plan that resulted um, from the work that we did from our planning grant. And then following the planning grant, we just did receive our implementation grant this year. And so we will be implementing two years' worth of a five-year preservation plan. And I have, I, have, I have plans for the third, fourths, and fifth years, too. I'm, I'm, I have very high hopes for this project. Following that, we were working with New Jersey on their planning process. And then after that, currently in process, we are working with West Virginia on creating their preservation plan. Backtracking a little, thanks to the Heritage Health Index project, I just think it's remarkable that we were able to assemble for the first time ever an accurate snapshot of, collect, of conditions at collecting institutions across the country. And I've heard praise for that at this conference, quite a bit of praise for that. It's just a remarkable achievement. What I haven't heard is that this data is that so far we've only realized a portion of the value of what that data can give us. And that's because when you look at a set of data lines, like I'm coming at this from a very data analyst position. When you look at a set of data lines like this, what we have is a baseline. And a baseline is a starting point for understanding how things change and improve. So everybody who's doing the statewide plans should be already thinking about holding on to them. And I hope Heritage Preservation is thinking about this in the same way as well should be looking at returning to these surveys in 5 to 15 years in order to readminister them. And when you do readminister them, it's just advice, consultant advice on this, when you do readminister them, you can add questions. You can delete questions. If you have good reasons to delete questions, there's no problem with deleting them. But you cannot alter the question, you cannot alter the wording of the questions you currently have. Not even if you're the Virgin Islands and you're very unhappy with the way it turned out. It's still the same survey that goes out because that's the only way you can get viable, comparable information, comparable information to move ahead. And from all this, I think we're really going to have an outstanding idea of the moving picture of collecting institutions and what's working and what's not. So the, the evaluation of this aspect of this project necessarily makes this, we have to be looking at it in the long term. 
My first survey was in Pennsylvania, and that was based on the Minnesota survey that Bob put together because he really took the lead with, um, with starting the statewide approach. Okay. <laughs> and Cheryl? Okay. And, and, and previous to, and that was, ba that, and that was built upon the model of the Heritage Health Index survey that they put out. And that brings up the reframe that I'm also hearing about this con throughout this conference, which um, Lori Foley, I think, best said yesterday at the disaster planning session, which was great. Um, that's the, her belief in R&D. Um, I'm just going to keep that. The rip off and duplicate, that is what we're preaching here because we are creating models and we are encouraging you to share them and to duplicate the work of others, duplicate what works. So that's what we did. We built upon those surveys. But I did want to flip that into positive so it wasn't entirely, um, it's not entirely rip off and duplicate. You can look at this from the positive. We were standing on the shoulders of the giants who came before us, Minnesota and um, Minnesota and um, Heritage Preservation and the work that they had done. We worked from their surveys. Pennsylvania had a very good survey. New Jersey built upon what we learned in doing the Pennsylvania survey, so I think that was even better. And frankly, I think West Virginia benefits most of all from coming last in the process. They have a simply fantastic survey, and that survey has received an absolutely astounding response rate of 54%, which I won't entirely account to the quality of the survey. I think it also accounts to the quality of the database that they provided us with. They really, they, they did such a good job of preparing that. So I want to thank, you know, Minnesota and Heritage Preservation for allowing us to partake in the R&D process here. And move on to discussing four interesting aspects that I pulled out as a data analyst from looking at these collections. And the first one is the problem of public libraries. I figured as long as I'm mainly with historic sites, I'll pick on libraries. But I'm not really picking on libraries. The public libraries, public, public libraries, when we started the task force, we had to ask the task force, what organizations are we serving? Who are we including in this? Are we including public libraries? That is the first very big question because some public libraries have special collections and some don't. Now, if you do include public libraries, and uh, I'll get into the benefits. All three of them chose to include public libraries and realized tremendous benefits from doing that. In Pennsylvania, there was so much talk at the focus groups that this was the first time museums and libraries were getting together in the same room to discuss shared common interests in their special collections and realizing all the similarities of the issues that they were facing. So a lot of benefit from that. Even more so in West Virginia, where the libraries really stood up and said, you know, we have resources, we have space, they can come and have meetings in our space at the public libraries and use our resources. So a lot of benefits were really coming out of using the public libraries. But in analyzing this data, you have to realize that we were looking at eight different types of organizations, archives, public libraries, special and academic, historical societies, historic houses, art museums, history museums, general museums. Public libraries are different. Seven out of eight have a primary mission of caring for special collections. 
public libraries does not. It is necessarily a secondary mission of the public library to care for special collections that they may have. So you have to be a little careful with the data, and that brings up the extreme importance of staring bug-eyed for hours and hours at tables like this, trying to figure out what's going on in the cross-tabulations where we separate out what these places are asking for. And here you can see that historic, well, you might not be able to see, but I'll tell you, historic, um, historic sites have, uh, historic societies have number one, and historic sites have number one in ranking for workshop topics, fundraising for preservation and conservation. That's my workshop. I love my workshop. I love to see it number one. Um, so I'm always checking out where that falls. And then I look over and say, well, what's going on with public libraries? It's number 10 under public libraries. So there's a real discrepancy here, and you wonder, well, what's number one? Number one at public libraries is book repair. Book repair is number 18 on the historic sites. So, so you do have to go down into the cross-tabulation data to figure out who's asking for what, and those are important details that you have to be looking at in the data analysis process. This is my Donald Rumsfeld section now, the known knowns versus the unknown knowns. <laughs> the scary thing is when I'm doing a data analysis, I start sound, I start, I, I, I very much pick up Donald Rumsfeld speak. <laughs> I just want to look at the top line there, books and bound volumes is 20% in unknown condition. That's good. That's important to know. I consider, and we considered in the analysis of all three states, that unknown condition means at risk. If they don't know what condition it's in, in our opinion, it's at risk. Under the known, you get what's in urgent need, what they consider in urgent need of treatment, in need of treatment, or in good condition. We define at risk as being in either urgent need or need not good condition. You look at this and you see 65% is in good condition. Actually, that's not too bad. That's sounding pretty good. But of course, that's not the whole picture because then you have to do the math. Urgent need plus need equals 35% in need. 35% of known conditions, though, that's 35 out of 80 35 out, of, 35 out of 100 equals 28%, uh, 28 out of 80. So you're looking at 28%. The math is right. I just don't know how to say this aloud. Unknown plus the known in need means 48% of the books and bound volumes in Pennsylvania are, to some degree, could be considered significantly at risk. And I was looking at the Minnesota figures when Bob had them up here because he had his books and bound volume figures. And I think it, it very much validates these figures. He has 53% of the books and bound volumes surveyed in Minnesota should be considered at risk. This is the third aspect I wanted to very briefly discuss, the off-site storage problem. We looked at this in all three states, most fully in New Jersey. New Jersey, we had a special set of questions specifically looking at collection storage. We got a nice snapshot from the other states, but in New Jersey, we really dove down into the figures to try and figure out what was going on. And basically, that process has left us just frustrated. 
Off-site storage is inadequate at many locations. 236 respondents to the New Jersey survey, and out of them, 25 are happy. These are the ones who have off-site storage. 25 of the ones who have off-site storage are happy with their off-site storage. The other 21 are basically dissatisfied with their off-site collection storage. And of course, that's 46 out of 230, so you figure 190 do not have off-site storage, or at least aren't admitting that they have off-site storage. Is there room for collection growth in New Jersey collection, um, collecting in institutions? No, no, there's very little room. Um, at best, 50.9% have limited room for growth, and a number of them have less than that. So two-thirds of the New Jersey collecting institutions don't have much room at all for continued growth of collections, meaning a need for off-site storage? You'd think so, but then you ask them, what workshops would you like to see delivered? What educational programs would you like to see delivered in their state? And out of 23 topics, storage planning for cultural collections placed 21. So that's it's like it's not, it, either it's not on the radar, either it's an ostrich with head in sand situation. It's difficult to figure out exactly what's going on. There was a solution, a very cost-efficient, smart solution, I would think, I think it's a smart solution, of shared collaborative storage that was put up. Would you participate in shared collaborative storage? Over 50% of them gave a flat no. So... This is actually the limits of data analysis, what you can get. All we can do is say, hey, we've pinpointed a problem, but we haven't found a solution. A very interesting problem, and you know, we've loaded some solutions. We don't seem to quite be there. Is it a case of education, as has been suggested? Do they just need more education to know that shared collaborative storage is a potentially good solution, maybe that's the case. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell from the data. And finally, to close with fourth, on a very positive note, the value of investments. And we pulled this from the Pennsylvania survey. After we did the crosstabs on types of organizations, organizational size, and region, we I, I pulled out two other subsets for a further evaluation, and that was the sites of the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission. They had, what, 20... Seven sites? 27 sites in Pennsylvania that received technical and assistance and educational programming and planning help on a very high level. They had good funding for that. This was before the economy collapsed. And then we had the Philadelphia Stewardship Program, which the Conservation Center administers, which we've been administering since 2001, and we've worked with around 50 uh, around 60 organizations in Philadelphia through the Philadelphia Stewardship Program providing technical assistance and educational programs. Very well funded. I separated these two subsets out to look at them more closely, and frankly, the results of where these organizations are blew the other respondents out of the water in all categories, environmental conditions, environmental monitoring, storage, needs assessment surveys, collection surveys, disaster plans, they were all far ahead of the grade. So sometimes you hear about not, you know, we don't just want to throw money at 
a problem, but these were actually the organizations where money was invested into the problem, where there were targeted investments in educational programming and technical assistance and a real emphasis on planning prior to the delivery of the survey, for a number of years prior to the delivery of the survey. And the results of that was measurable in the survey that you received better collections care and safer collections thanks to the investments of outside people who cared. At least that's the way that I read the data. As we've been hearing these uh, presentations this morning, I had some nice notes that I was going to talk about, but I've decided to sort of throw away that script and uh, talk about things just to sort of riff off of what uh, Lee and Bob were talking about. Um, I had the opportunity to do a number of projects and see a number of different models of how a variety of methods of market research have worked with uh, some of the states and territories I've had a chance to work with. So I'm going to talk a bit about Delaware, and you'll have deja vu from Wednesday because there are one or two slides that are a little bit similar there. Um, I'm going to talk quite a bit about Ohio because we trapped some very interesting findings from there. And then I'll also uh, be talking about the actual good aspects, the really wonderful aspects of the U.S. Virgin Islands project. So. Uh, in Delaware, we did a lot of site visits and uh, visits to museums, historical societies, park service sites, because the libraries had already been uh, visited and we got uh, good information from uh, those visits. What we did at the historical societies and museums were brief visits and brief reports, whereas the visits that we had with the libraries were quite lengthy. They were one and two day visits and we got quite a bit more lengthy reports. And Rachel Onuf and uh, Angelina Altabellas, who did some of the activities for NEDCC, found a wide variety of concerns. And these may be concerns that you have seen in surveys at your institutions or you saw in your statewide survey information, um, but might need to be built into some of the big topics that Lee has talked about, environmental control, uh, some of these other areas. Uh, building maintenance and problem logs, the need for that type of thing. Is that something that you can have your states start to build, even if it's very rudimentary? Fire marshal visits, drills, uh, even suppression systems. Okay, that's fire marshal visits can be free except for baking cookies or bringing in some, a couple of pots of chili. Um, and so we can get that done quite easily. Suppression systems might be a little bit more expensive, but how can we build up that progression? Uh, we have the idea of supervised use of special collections. Uh, is that something that we can think about from uh, maybe uh, shared activities between uh, historical societies, museums, and libraries. So there is an ability to share staff to do more of that work. And uh, then if there are organizations like the Delaware Disaster Assistance Team that provide disaster workshops, can we build on that to 
develop plans and develop disaster supply kits. So a lot of good detailed findings that could be built into programs from the NEDCC reports. We found out some bigger things from the uh, Palinet uh, reports at that point. Uh, preservation planning documents, disaster plans, environmental levels were all areas that we saw some needs in. And then the on-site survey findings mainly had to do with the buildings the materials were in and where the materials were placed and stored in the buildings. And this is going to come back in just about all of the things that I have to talk about here. Because in a lot of cases, we have our collections um, that uh, either are inventoried or need to be inventoried, but the shell, the envelope that we have them in is a big question and big concern. So let's think about what we can do to make the shell better for our materials. I do want to focus a little bit more on the Ohio Connecting to Collections survey. We had a good 40% return rate. We had a very widespread group of organizations who uh, we worked with and had answers from. Um, we found out what they were doing and we're very pleased with this. I've got to tell you in some other states, this slide might have been blank because there was not a majority of the institutions who were doing any of these activities. So there are some things that have been going on in Ohio. The Ohio Preservation Council, which has been going on for 25 years. Um, a lot of activity among the academic libraries and groups like uh, the Ohio Association of uh, History Museums. Uh, and I probably won't get this acronym completely right, but the way that they used to say this was, oh, awesome. And I think that that is a great acronym. It is awesome. So um, those folks were helping build these types of programs. But we also found there was a list of needs of what needs to be done. Again, the long-range preservation plans, a great lack of on-site preservation surveys, and policies and procedures, disaster plans were both lacking. And I've found, I've had an opportunity to work in one method or another with about 17 of the states that have been undergoing uh, the Connecting to Collections projects. And this lack of long-range plans, lack of uh, the surveys, is a national problem. So the idea of providing model plans and policies, having policies as workshop outcomes, and particularly for those of you who are involved right now in implementation projects or are writing implementation plans, I think this is a really good thing to look at coming out with. And what type of consulting can be used to help develop this. Another thing that I think is going very well is the work that um, Kristen and uh, Heritage Preservation is doing to have the uh, Connecting to Collections webinars. This can help us uh, develop these two. One of the major concerns, as I mentioned before, is the uh, idea of safe storage and safe housing of materials. And this was the thing that really jumped into 3D off of the surveys in Ohio to us. Um, we asked, how much of your institution's collection would you estimate is adequately stored? And we had adequately stored, this question had about a, uh, I don't know, an asterisk with maybe a paragraph of information talking about what would, you know, we would consider adequate storage, safe storage, uh, easily accessible, um, et cetera. And 38 institutions, 15% said none of their collections were adequately stored. Uh, these are the stewards of these collections. Uh, a large amount, over one-third, said only 1% to 25%. Overall, 70% of the respondents felt that half or less of their collections are stored well. So 
one thing that came out of this was um, while Ohio did not get its implementation grant uh, in year two, uh, there was a, a method that they used to find some funding and they are going to have a set of space and storage planning workshops so that they can directly address this major urgent concern. Another good thing, and this is something where I really am a fan of Lee's idea of doing these surveys on a regular basis to track where people are going and what the concerns are. We had the top three concerns, top three most serious preservation problems. Um, and you can see lack of funds, but lack of space jumps up there, environmental issues, lack of staff time, proper storage, need for digitization. Um, we actually had open-ended questions where people were able to put this information in there. And we had to do a little bit of content analysis, but we got some of the best information and some of the things that will contribute most to our implementation activities out of this type of question. Disaster plannings, uh, planning, one-third of the respondents, 90 respondents, had had disasters caused by a wide variety of activities but still 48% had no disaster plan. Uh, we had a lot of people who had plans and they hadn't been updated in quite a while. And 14% are developing plans. For those of you who did web surveys or mail surveys and had people answer that they were having plans in development, I always have a litmus test for this. And that litmus test is, does the plan work if the person is walking into the library on a Friday morning and sees green ooze from the air conditioner coming out from under the front door. If you have that kind of problem happening at your institution when you walk in, will your plan be able to help you in the for, uh, where it's developed to right now? Will that plan be able to help you recover from the concerns that you're having? So there are sort of two means of the uh, meanings of this finding. One is that uh, it is yes, in development people are working on it, but how well developed is it? The great thing that we found, and this is really a finding that has been across many of the surveys, 82% plus had a working relationship with local first responders and emergency managers. And so if we can keep those relationships going, that's very good. We had uh, questions about the areas of interest um, for either state-based programs or contract services, and you can see some of the information here. We found out a lot of the barriers to training, again, travel costs and registration costs, but the need to bring things into the region. Where we were, I think, very interested to see the, uh, the, the types of institutions answering um, both the public libraries with local history collections and the historical societies um, had uh, photographic collections with the highest urgent need on which training was needed. So we're looking at how can we get that uh, need answered. We had disaster preparedness, of course, as a top type of activity, but people wanted to learn about what conservation could do for them. What goes into a preservation management program and digitization were seen as high-level training needs. So this idea of a curriculum, and uh, one of the things that I'd like you to look at when you go back and are able to see the programs that are going on for implementation is the great curriculum that Pennsylvania and CCAHA have developed for their program. Um, uh, try to, to look at how we can mix all of these needs together into a curriculum that uh, is knit together very well. 
we had estimates of formats held. And remember, this was a 40% response rate. So you can see millions of these items and only 40% of the identified repositories in the state answered this survey. So we had a lot of information to show our legislators about the need for better space, better buildings, and uh, better conditions. The thing that I felt happened in Ohio, which I hope that all of you will be able to build on in your surveys, is getting some comments at the end of the surveys. And I gotta tell you, I was in need of heartburn medicine or in need of a box of Kleenex after I read some of these. You know, in smaller museums, the awareness of preservation is not a high priority. Don't overlook or forget about the many, many small museums or sites with little or no funds to properly house their items. Our parent institution doesn't support our interest in archival preservation of library materials. How can we change that? It's been impossible to convince our local government officials to address our needs as there's not local money to be spared at this time. Um, and then it, it gets even worse. You know, I can, <laughs> I can hardly read these without my voice breaking here. But uh, you know, it, it's really something that was very instructive. We were saying, okay, these are basic needs that have to be addressed. So these comments from the surveys actually are things that can be used in some of the publicity, that can be used in further outreach, and uh, I think they have been very helpful. Um, just a, a couple of other things we, we did in Ohio. Uh, we had uh, questions on uh, preservation funding, staffing, digitization, and digital preservation, which I have gathered from many of you in conversation is something that is a, a large-scale concern. We had a summit meeting and a series of regional meetings as well. Um, this was another thing. We tried to be as uh, wide with our coverage as we could. We had 77 of the 88 counties in the state answer our um, uh, web survey, and so we did telephone interviews with the other 11 counties, so we had a full picture of the state. And we drew a lot of conclusions. The cohesive curriculum, the idea of making the curriculum available as widely as possible, and lack of storage, and lack of awareness being high-scale concerns. So this was something where it was a web survey, yes, but also going out into the field and finding out what has happened. And then USVI, the US Virgin Islands, we did a lot of work on site. In fact, uh, the one thing that Susan didn't mention in her presentation on Wednesday is that she had me go on 50 visits in one week, uh, and, and that was pretty crazy. But we found, again, this idea of the need for preservation policies, the need for environmental control, fire detection and suppression, digital planning. All of these activities are things that you can find from going around and doing surveys. So I think what I was going to say is, in addition to the web surveys, these on-site surveys can be extremely important whether you're doing them during a planning project or whether you're doing them somehow or other during your implementation project as part of the services you're going to deliver, they can really help pull a lot of trends out that are very important. Um, the electronic survey results uh, from the USVI are still being pulled together at this point, uh, and so we'll be able to see how well those things match up. But I, along with, uh, the, the work and the activity that uh, Lee and Bob have talked about, and very 
very interested in how can we further analyze the unique findings from all 50 states, from all of the territories that were surveyed, and try to find out what some of the concerns are across the map and what some of the answers are that you have come up with across the map. I think we've done a good job taking an initial look at that at this meeting, and I hope in Salt Lake City we can talk about it a little bit more through poster sessions, through open discussion, and best practice discussion as well. So thank you. Okay, while I get everything warmed up here, um, just wanted to ask who in the room represents a state where you have your survey done, like report in hand? Okay, and how many are doing a survey, but maybe it's like in process or your, your report's not just quite out yet? And then how many are, would like to do and are planning to do and but haven't started up yet? Okay, so a lot of you are done with your, um, your plans. Um, we, uh, Heritage Preservation has um, contracted with the Texas State Library and Archives Commission, and you probably saw this in some emails we sent this summer, but we um, are on contract with them to collect the data sets and collect the the any products that came out of your surveys, and we will be putting that on a de in deposit in a library, a digital library. Um, we also are looking into the possibility that Heritage Preservation to do some analysis on these state surveys and, and use it as a means of, of comparing it to the Heritage Health Index data and, um, and uh, get back to all of you with, with some more fuel for your fire, so to speak. Um, I just wanted to, to note um, that all of these sessions have been recorded and Danielle will match up our PowerPoints with them so you will have an archival record with all of our nice numbers and information about how the surveys were conducted. And um, also, um, just, to, just to reiterate again, I've talked to a lot of you as you were planning your surveys, but the Heritage Health Index Survey instrument is open and available for the taking, unfortunately, for USBI, not in a format where you can just launch it online easily yourself, I'm afraid to say. But, but do rip off questions, especially definitions. And I'll reiterate what Lee said. Um, the way questions were phrased was not haphazard. We had over 70 professionals consult with Heritage Preservation over a one-year period to write the questions just the right way to make sure they were applicable to library people, archive people, museums, historical societies, from the Met to the tiniest volunteer-run historical society. It was, it was an extremely deliberate process, something we really invested in and wanted to invest in to make sure that the survey instrument would have life um, beyond the first time it was conducted. Um, so we, we designed it to have a long-term um, applicability. And, and as Lee said, don't, ch don't change wording. As tempted as you might be, because it does change the data. You can add questions, you can drop questions. But especially to definitions, when we define something as in need or at risk, 
Um, those are extremely deliberately written, and I encourage you just to take um, take the opportunity to have your work already done for you. So the Heritage Health Index was conducted in 2004. So that's our data. This that point in time. The, the report came out in 2005. Um, I'm a little bit proud of the fact that we took just one year to get it from raw data to a published report and, and out in, in the press, um, if I can just say. Um, and I'll just go, I'll just hit a couple of highlights from the data. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Oops. But um, we, um, I'll just reiterate a couple of these and how they compare to some of the states we've heard about this morning. So we heard that the 80% figure is one of the well-known figures from the Heritage Health Index. 80% of inst collecting institutions in the U.S. did not have an emergency plan with staff trained to carry it out. And this is just a breakdown by region of the country. Um, U.S. territories in the eastern part of the United States are lumped into mid-Atlantic and um, Pacific territories are in the West, but there's really there's really no ma major. We saw no major sort of significant difference between the regions. The Southeast was the best off, at, and the Northeast were the best off at 77 percent, but not not good enough. Um, but I would say, you know, compared to um, Ohio data that said 48 percent had no disaster plan, and that 14 percent were in development, that's actually good. Um, if I can dare say, um, in Minnesota reporting 40%. So, I mean, if you're comparing that back to the 80% we saw in 2004, um, Georgia, yesterday Christine Wiseman, her presentation mentioned 74%, um, so um, could be better. But um, So they're still sobering numbers, but, you know, maybe the fact that between 2004 and these, we had Katrina, Rita, we've been doing projects such as the Alliance for Response project that Heritage Preservation does. We've had West Pass and other workshops. I'm feeling better a little bit um, that maybe all of these efforts between 2004 and 2008 and 9, when these surveys were done, that um, we might be seeing an improvement, that some of our, all of our hard work and advocacy may be paying off. Um, and I wouldn't make a point here when you're thinking about survey questions or when you're analyzing your survey data. Um, one of the big lessons I learned from the Heritage Health Index was um, what I call the challenge of yes and the importance of no. When someone says, yes, we monitor our temperature and relative humidity, it just begs a lot of extra questions. Well, you say yes, but what does that mean? You know, well, what tools do you use? Well, are your staff trained on that? Well, do you record it? Well, do you save it? Do you, you, know, you could go on forever asking about what, what yes means. But when they say no, no, we have no emergency plan, no, we have no staff trained on this task, no, we have nothing stored appropriately, then you've got real data. I mean, there's no arguing that. It's they don't do it and they need to do it. And I think that's your no's are where you're going to really see your opportunity for advocacy and, and outreach. So storage was a big issue. Um, that we found and that, that these state surveys have found. Um, sorry, it's, it's on like auto advance. Um, and actually, one thing I would tell you to change in the Heritage Health Index survey is my percentages. Um, 
really big mistake to break it like one to 19 percent. Like, what's that? I mean, you want to talk about a quarter of people, half of people, three quarters of people. So please change my percentages. You have my permission. Um, I think Minnesota did do that, and then in Tom's survey in Ohio did that. So, so I can't now. I'm having trouble comparing my data, but um, Ohio had found that nobody that 15% said that none of their collections were stored safely. Heritage Health Index found 8%, so a little bit worse. Um, and that when you look at sort of who has less than half, um, Ohio was up to 72. Heritage Health Index was, was around 40 or so. Um, we had asked about the need for additional on-site storage, improved storage, uh, off-site storage, and storage renovation. And um, again, like Lee's survey did, trying to sort of tap into, can we, can we identify a solution here? And pretty much people said they needed it all. Um, it's clearly a big issue, and I can sort of respond to some of Lee's observations, you know, why people aren't taking it, why people aren't jumping on a shared stored bank bandwagon, what's the holdup. I think this is the unfortunate part of data collecting in the economic times we're in right now. Storage is expensive. The last thing they have, people have time and energy to do is a capital campaign for any kind of building. So many of these collections are in historic structures that have just limitations um, in space and ability to renovate. Um, this is just a handful of reasons that I'm sure all of you are familiar with. But um, I think it's possible that um, it might be time to start to look to some other solutions. And I'm, I've been very inspired lately by hearing conservators talk about microclimates. The building envelope may be inherently faulty um, and inherently expensive to deal with. And I think, unfortunately, we are in a situation of, of condensed resources and it's not probably changing quickly. So there's, we, but we need to stop putting this off. Um, the, uh, the Pennsylvania State Library is the leader right now in this microclimate. If you're not familiar with that project, maybe Tom can point us to a website that we can, they think they're doing more to put, publicize the project and put stuff up on their website. They have a huge, amazing, beautiful, uh, wouldn't trade it for the world, historic structure that um, I love, but it is horrible for storing collections. They will fully admit it. And the, the amount of money needed to renovate that building would be impossible. But they, what they have done is they have inside that building made a state-of-the-art microclimate that is going to hold their collections in perfect condition for 250 more years. And they're fastidious in this project. So they've done a lot of research that could be applicable to other places. But um, there's also many ways to scale that down to very affordable, practical solutions. And I think that's something. Um, if some of you can work in your states, maybe tapping with local conservators to investigate those solutions, I think that would be a great way to start to deal with some of these numbers. Um, when the Heritage Health Index was done, we asked what caused, what were some causes of damage to collections, and um, improper storage or enclosure ranked as one of the highest ones, but you can see physical chemical deterioration, light handling, water moisture are also top ranking causes for damage. All of those things happen in storage. All the things in poor storage are at risk for that kind of damage as well. So I think we also get a large impact for
for any investments that we make, any kind of storage improvements that can be made. Uh, Long-range planning was another thing that these surveys pointed out as an issue. Um, we have um, also similarly found 50% in the Heritage Health Index results people didn't have a long-range plans. And um, you know, I think Minnesota, Ohio also addressed this. Uh, Minnesota, 58% didn't have a long-range plan. And um, we found actually that in 1985, there was a study done by, it was a joint project between AAM, IMLS, and Heritage Preservation. And it was starting to ask some of these questions about collections management and conservation. Actually, at that point, it was so since 1985 was 28%. So already we're, we're on the upswing. I think just the notion of long-range planning, strategic planning has taken hold during these decades as well. Um, but heritage preservation, we've sort of been back and forth on this. Um, we've, we know the value of a written long-range plan, um, and, and we want to encourage that. But we've, sometimes we start to wonder, um, are we emphasizing th that plan too much at the expense of other more urgent needs, such as an emergency disaster plan or, or regular funding of staff or improvements to storage, et cetera? So um, uh, we will keep asking this question. We'll keep promoting the concept, but, but I think that's an interesting um, thing to think about when you're thinking of, of your surveys or analyzing your results. And then have people done surveys of the condition of their collections? Um, we had 35% that had not done a survey in the, in the Heritage Health Index. Minnesota said 40%, so that's similar. Um, Pennsylvania had 58%, so it's a little bit higher. Um, and again, we, we really know the value of doing a survey, a general survey. Um, but I think what the Delaware project has really revealed, and we've definitely noticed this in the Heritage Health Index data too, is it's even hard to do surveys when you don't know what you have. And the inventory issue, for, especially for historical societies and small museums, was outrageous. Um, so the Delaware project and some of the solutions they're promoting, I think, are, are great. Um, so, you know, that, that gets into Lee's points on unknown condition. I think it's val absolutely valid to analyze your data when people said things were in unknown condition to, um, to call that risk. I think that's, that's clear. And you hear the stories all the time. You know, we were in the back room and we went through this box and then all of a sudden, you know, we found this deteriorated textile. It's just a story, unfortunately, that happens too often. Um, the Heritage Health Index similarly had quite a lot of on of unknown condition for things. Bulk cataloged archaeological specimens was one of the highest along with digital materials. Um, but moving image and recorded sound were also extremely high. And these are also extremely fragile items. So that is really scary. Um, and, and Lee you know, had sort of 20% of books in bound volumes and, and unknown condition. But he also is similarly uh, noticed that that AV materials were high in that. Um, one of the things that the Heritage Health Index got to a, a point, a juncture in the road, where we were talking to our statistician, we were planning our survey sample, and 
we had wanted to do state-based data collection, where we could say California is doing great in disaster planning, Minnesota could do better. Um, and we got to a sort of a point in the road and we, we found out that we would have had to sample at such a high level in some states and, and, and demand such a high response rate. So for example, California, we could do a nice random sample, be satisfied with a pretty decent response rate. But if we're gonna ca compare California to Delaware, 100% of Delaware would have had to respond. And the, the energy and the time and the resources that that was gonna require was just not gonna be possible. So we had to make that difficult decision and, and go our way to get national data and get high quality national data. I believe we did do that. Um, so that's why a lot of your, when I would always get the call from you saying, don't you have our state data? Can't you ship it out to me? And I could, but it's not, it's not, if there's the margin of errors were too high. So it's, it's wonderful that you've done the work you have on your, on your states. Um, well, one of the challenges on that, and I think this is seen in this next slide, I compared um, HHI data in the blue with um, the, what they called the conditions at risk um, in the Minnesota survey, and Bob and I chatted. So when we, what Heritage Preservation deemed as need or urgent need is equivalent to what Minnesota called at risk. And I put that in the Minnesota uh, gophers maroon. Um, and the Minnesota data is, is much, um, shows much more at risk than the Heritage Health Index. Now, I did not combine my unknowns in with this, and I think that, that you, you should do that. I think that's, um, typically I stack another, the unknowns on top of it at risk, um, and I could have done that in the slide, but um, if I'd add the unknowns, we would definitely be equivalent or even possibly higher. But look at the end, those are the archeological specimens and the natural science specimens where the Heritage Health Index showed more in need than in Minnesota. And I think this is an example, a little bit this happened in Pennsylvania too. This is, an, this is where an advantage of a national survey comes in. I know you need to act locally and having your, your state data is very, very powerful for you. But when it comes to specialized collections like natural science specimens, there's more of those collections nationally than there, there may be per state. And so you want a bigger sample when it comes to looking at types of collections or types of institutions. And I think a, a national survey brings that. So this is my information. We have some of the survey um, instruments that these states developed up here if you want to come talk to us afterwards about it. Um, and you know, as you're doing a data analysis and, and your reports or you're looking for ideas on how you can make the most of your data, I'm happy to speak with you, either today or when I'm back in the office. And then at four o'clock today, we're gonna to actually be talking about